Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the September 19, 2017 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, Chelsea Cox, Associate Director of Education at UCI Mind, will cover this week's, that's Friday, September 22, ambitious Alzheimer's Conference and its groundbreaking theme, the elephant in the room, sensitive subject in dementia care. Space is always available for last minute enrollees. You can register at the alzoc.org events link and or you could call 949-757-3721 but we'll give you that information again later if you missed that while you were you were commuting the second guest will be uci writer and resident rebecca tuhus dubral with her new book entitled personal stereo published by bloomsbury in this book she traces the history of the walkman along with examining its psychosocial impacts taking us from the analog to the digital and possibly back. We'll be right back after a short station break. Welcome back to the show. It's that time of the year, folks, when UCI Mind and Alzheimer's Orange County present another enlightening and engaging conference bringing together researchers, clinicians, and community members like you and I. My first guest is Chelsea Cox here to present this year's 28th woohoo annual Southern California Alzheimer's Disease Research Conference convening this Friday if you're listening live it's this Friday September 22 at the Irvine Marriott Hotel the title this year is the elephant in the room sensitive subjects in dementia care in which our guest had a hand in formulating the themes Chelsea is the Associate Director of Education for the Institute of, for Memory Impairments and Neurological Disorders. We'll call that MIND shorthand throughout the interview at UCI. UCI MIND is home to one of 30 National Institutes of Health designated Alzheimer's Disease Research Centers across the country and is the only center in Orange County. Chelsea raises community awareness of research discoveries related to Alzheimer's disease and brain health, researches recruitment and retention for Alzheimer's disease clinical studies, and is co-editor for UCI Mind newsletter and website. I could show you this lovely piece, it's, but we're on radio. I can't show you. Chelsea earned her Bachelor's of Arts in Psychology from the University of Michigan, Ann Armour, her Master's degrees in Social Work and Public Health from the University of Southern California, and served in the National Teacher Corps, Teach for America. She joins me in studio today. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Chelsea Cox. Thank you so much for having me. Well, to begin, Chelsea, congratulations on putting in motion this forum of such utter delicacy and major import. You and I both, as we were preparing for this, we talked about, we both have some personal experience yes. with loved ones grappling with these issues. It's impressive in how groundbreaking this year's theme is. Could you just take us a little bit behind the scenes with the wrangling over how frank to make this theme and these topics? Sure. As you mentioned, this conference is in its 28th year, um, and we've traditionally chosen themes that focus on advances in diagnosis, treatment, and prevention of Alzheimer's disease and dementia. 
And that information is so important and it's ever evolving. Um, researchers, including those at UCI Mine, were learning more and more about the disease and working hard to develop innovative ways to identify and treat it. But, you know, what about the day-to-day experiences? Of Some of these, these sensitive topics are not the kind of thing that people really feel like they can speak openly about. They're just, some of them are just downright awful or creepy. So yeah. let's, yes, you so were we saying. we really wanted to focus on, you know, there's, there's five and a half million people with Alzheimer's disease in the United States. And, and growing. And growing. And um, even more family members and friends are providing unpaid care, uh, nearly 16 million. And right here in Orange County, there's over 80,000 people living with the disease. So for the conference this year, we wanted to focus on the unique psychosocial challenges that impact so many people and with Alzheimer's disease in their networks, their families and their friends. Too often, the topics that we plan to cover at this conference are left unaddressed because people don't know when or how to bring them up, hence the elephant in the room theme. So we really hope that the conference this year provides a safe space that reduces stigma and gets patients, families, students, healthcare providers thinking about how to have these sensitive conversations. Well, but when we go through all of these lovely panels, we're going to find out that's plural. There's more than one elephant in the room because th- they're all there are some very distinct sensitive topics here. So it's a, it's a herd walking through there. Well, these these topics. They're going to beg many questions of both the clinicians and the community. How will the question and answer session be accommodated over this really ambitious program? It's a proverbial problem. That's a really great question, Claudia. And one of the pieces of feedback that we got from the conference last year was that there there wasn't enough time for Q&A. Um, people, there never is. People are thirsty and hungry for this information. And especially with topics as sensitive as these, we really wanted to try and incorporate some more time for Q&A. So um, there's going to be around 10 minutes of Q&A time at the end of each topic. And even in the um, materials folders that we'll be providing to all of the attendees, we're going to have little index cards where people can actually choose to, instead of raising their hand, maybe there's a sensitive question and and someone might want to prefer to write down on an index card their question and then hand it off to somebody to bring it up to the moderator. They might be more succinct that way. Yeah. That might help uh, expedite things. So we'll see how that works. Okay. Well, let's jump in to the topics on this year's programs. The beginning, I mean, of course, there's going to be the the Frank LaFarella, Jim McAleer opener in the morning. It's after, it's 7.30 is when the the coffee and the the chit-chat and the talk with the exhibitors. Yeah, registration happens at 7.30. Mm -hmm. And then, so then after Frank LaFarella and Jim McAleer have their introduction, the first... And Joshua Grill. And Joshua Grill. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes, that's right. Mm -hmm. The first group would be the driving risk and cognitive impairment with Dr. Brian Ott from Brown University. This one, it plagues so many families straddling the art and the law. What would you like to tell us uh, the common driving errors with patient IDs that for people to understand they can see those markers? Yes, uh, definitely a sensitive subject. When to decide with a loved one that it's time to stop driving. Um, Dr. Ott, who, as you mentioned, is from Brown University. He is the director of the Alzheimer's Disease and Memory Disorders Center there and professor of neurology at um, the Brown Medical School. He's going to discuss some of the common driving errors associated with Alzheimer's disease. Um, Some of those include, you know, forgetting where one is driving and difficulty navigating. 
he'll talk about how driving is a symbol of independence for many people. Yeah, the autonomy that Dr. Atul Gawande talks yeah. about is so precious. Yeah, so you know, how do we how do we start these difficult conversations with people? He'll he'll talk about um, how to have those conversations about driving cessation when the time comes, and how families might approach that discussion. Okay, and there'll be he'll say so much more. They, they're loaded. Certainly. They're loaded, and I'm I have to keep pitching every year when I talk about this conference. It's really remarkable how it this conference serves the clinicians. It's it's all of it is leading edge research really recent findings and it's so accessible to all who come I mean, you don't have to have a medical degree to be able to follow this and they, they know somehow you're you must get them already the speakers but they they know how to pitch this I mean and maybe they feel a sense of urgency that their findings need to move in all sort of mainstream sort of realms for the research to have some value yeah, the, the conference is definitely targeted toward the lay community. So, you know, patients and care, family caregivers and friends and students and... Perspective we, people. Perspective yes, AD perspective, patients. yeah. They're so in there. Definitely. Um, <laughs> They've got a special look on their faces. But then we also have a lot of health care providers. Yes. And so it's kind of an art for the speakers to be able to... Um, tailor their presentations to be able to address it to both of those all of those different types of people who will be attending the next topic is elder abuse and neglect and our own formerly our own and now she's at UC Dr. Laura Mosqueda with her inestimably unflappable delivery and deep deep insights like the fact that abuse comes from hands of uh, loved ones and that is an indicator of stress that a loved one has experienced amidst the processing of uh, Alzheimer's disease and you alluded to that when you were talking about unpaid adult care there is a stressor in that that unpaid sector of that so what kind of findings are we expecting here in the progress if there's any progress made in this arena yeah, Dr. Mosqueda is one of the world's leading experts on this topic, and will discuss practical ways of thinking about abuse risk, intervention, and prevention among people with Alzheimer's disease and dementia. Elder abuse is surprisingly common in the United States. It affects one in 10 older adults, and it's even more common among people with dementia, such that nearly half will experience mistreatment in some, uh, at some point during their illness. And as you mentioned, Oftentimes, the abuse is from loved ones who are feeling overwhelmed or unequipped to handle caregiving. Or they don't understand the processing of Alzheimer's. Yeah. You so and I have known. We've seen that. People that are in varying degrees of intimacy with the our Alzheimer's patient that we that we knew and how people just, they're, they're sort of mad at the disease and so sure. they let it out on the patient. Sure. It can be very hard for families to understand what's going to happen next or how to handle um, the, the different changes in the disease. In this topic, elder abuse and neglect, Dr. Mosqueda plans to address these challenges head on. And the way she does it is like no other. Have you ever had a chance to hear speak publicly? I have not, but I am oh, well, greatly wait. looking forward You're, to it's it. It's going to bring public speaking to a whole new level, I think, that when I've ever heard her. It's, uh, it's remarkable. So the next topic is sex and intimacy among people with dementia. Dr. Merdad Ayadi of Stanford is going to take this very essential topic up. The biggest challenge being the perception of what are appropriate and inappropriate behaviors. I don't know if she's going to break it down and talk about, well, with the hippocampus being affected by that the, if the hippocampus is affected by the, the, 
pathology, the Alzheimer's, that is a regulator of the social controls. If that regulator is affected, that is one of the many realms that uh, where the sex and intimacy is manifest. Yeah, it's a good point, and I'm not sure that Dr. Ayati will um, delve into the neuroscience of it, but um, you know, he's a geriatrician who focuses clinically on on helping people maintain physical and mental wellness as they age. And as he will address in his presentation, sex is a basic human need. It doesn't just stop when a person reaches older age or develops dementia. Um, sex and intimacy just may look different in a person, in people with dementia. And Dr. Ayati will discuss how the biggest challenge is, is how we perceive sexual behaviors as appropriate or inappropriate. So how do we talk about these changes in intimacy in a way that respects patients and their family members? And he'll really um, shed some light on that. Well, I'm not sure if this is something that you're, you're boned up on, but is the setting where the Alzheimer's patient is living, is the appropriate might be a different standard in their own their residence, sure. their own personal residence, of, of their own home of origin versus an, an institutionalized residence. Yeah, and he's going to be um, talking about both of those scenarios and what um, it might look like in a residential care facility. And yeah, like how the bright lights are on them. They can't, uh, intimacy doesn't exist. But it does. And, and, it, and it should. Uh, and how, you know, how can residential care facility administrators and, and health care providers who work there um, acknowledge that and learn how to develop policies around that to um, respect patient autonomy. For those of you who've just joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. My guest is Chelsea Cox with this year's groundbreaking and essential themes of the 28th annual Southern California Alzheimer's Disease Research Conference convening Friday, September 22, at the Irvine Marriott Hotel. The title this year is The Elephant in the Room, Sensitive Subjects in Dementia Care. The next sensitive topic is the Neuropsychiatric Symptoms in Dementia. Dr. David Sulzer, up the I-405 from us at UCLA, will talk about the prevalence of these symptoms and identify the risks and benefits of commonly used off-label treatments for neuropsychiatric symptoms. This is... This is all science, hardly any art. It's getting, getting, managing anxiety, but not like toxifying them with neuropsychiatric drug or psych, psychotropic drugs that are a real hazard. Yeah, this is definitely, um, I would say, among the most challenging aspects of care for people people with Alzheimer's disease and dementia. In fact, around 70 to 90 percent will experience neuropsychiatric symptoms of some kind at some point in the in the disease. And so um, Dr. Soltzer, as you mentioned from UCLA, he's also a physician at the VA, the um, VA Greater Los Angeles, will discuss some of these common symptoms and the types of non-pharmacological and pharmacological approaches oh, to helping patients and families manage these symptoms throughout the course of the disease. There is, that's where the enlightenment comes in, sort of getting people off of these sort of counterindicated medications that confound the rest of their system or the that managing their anxieties and all that, which is, there's so much anxiety with Alzheimer's patients. Yeah, certainly. Eating them alive. Well, then there, the next section is, I think this may be, we're talking after lunch, end-of-life care for people with dementia, Dr. Lynn Flint of UC San Francisco, in the middle of amazing medical research. Now, what I didn't understand in the summary was the common end-of-life decisions. To me, I thought they were highly variable, but there is a, there is a common thread that that 
So what I thought these complexities uh, was a tribble to a variation. So what what might that be tapping into the common part? You know, I, I'm not entirely sure exactly yes. what Dr. Flint will will be discussing. Inevitably, um, Alzheimer's disease is a fatal illness and um, will approach end of life where families are having to make decisions. Um, and hopefully, if an advanced care plan um, directive, uh, advanced care directive is in place, then the patient is making decisions, um, you know, earlier on in the disease for themselves. Dr. Lynn Flint, she's a clinical professor of geriatrics at UCSF, and um, she's an attending physician on the hospice and palliative care service at, at the San Francisco VA Medical Center. And she's going to talk about her interactions with um, patients at the end of life who are living with cognitive impairment or Alzheimer's disease and dementia, and some of the decisions that they and their families confront. She'll talk a little bit about the difference between palliative care and hospice care. A lot of people have oh, questions think, yeah, about those, all of those us differences. Do. So that will be an important topic of discussion and differentiating between those two types of services. And then also, perhaps most importantly, Dr. Flint will be really providing guidance on how to communicate with families. So kind of targeted toward healthcare professionals. How do you communicate with families when a loved one is in the final stages of the disease? It can be a very emotional time, a very confusing time to know what to do. And especially providing things like prognostic estimates and um, working with patient, we're working with um, patients' families to develop goals and, and, you know, look at their values and the things that they want for their loved one and that their loved one might have wanted for themselves. And that's important, the prognostic estimates. They're they're so different than if we were to plot them, like cancer has a prognostic estimate that seems to be a bit predictable at the very terminal stage, but Alzheimer's can be really complicated. and uh, Yeah, it can uh, certainly I mean, very, vary from case to case. Very much so. <laughs> the next group, the panel will be on physician orders for life-sustaining treatment. It's called POLST. And Patty Mouton mm-hmm. of Alzheimer's Orange County is going to be taking this up. I've had Dr. Ashley Wolf, who was previously the Regional Administrator for Medicare, talk about the POLST. Patty Mouton is going to bring up the distinctions between the POLST and advanced directives. So that'll be very informative for all of us. Yeah, this is going to be a little bit of a shorter um, segment of the day. She'll speak about 15 minutes about this um, kind of fundamental form, the POLST form. that, Which is a national, it's not state by state. Yeah, exactly. And Ms. Mouton does a lot of outreach on this. She's very involved in raising awareness of -of end-of-life care and especially um, having these certain these forms, the physician orders for life-sustaining treatment, making sure that all hospitals and care providers and families know about them when they're approaching the end of life. Um, And she is vice president of outreach and advocacy at our conference collaborators, Alzheimer's Orange County. Um, So I'm really looking forward to this this talk and this update on the form and and what what physicians and families and, and healthcare providers can do to ensure it's in place. And then is the Physician's Aid in Dying. Faye Blix is an elder attorney. She's practicing, is she in in Orange County? She is. Okay. And Dr. Ruth Banka, UCI professor and medical doctor and a psychiatrist, they're going to unpackage the relatively new codified California Mm -hmm. End of Life Option Act. So that's that's going to be somewhat groundbreaking, too, because... There, there are some counterintuitive findings, what people didn't expect were going to happen. It's been now in effect for up to two 
Yeah, I believe it went into law. It was signed 25th, the end of 2015 and went into law 2016. Um, Yeah, Faye Blix, she's been an elder law attorney right here in Orange County since 1984. She works specifically with older adults um, and people with um, disabilities, people with Alzheimer's disease or, or dementia and their families. And she will begin the talk by reviewing the legal requirements of the California End of Life Option Act. Um, which I mentioned went into effect in 2016. And then Dr. Ruth Banka will discuss, will be there to kind of provide the physician's perspective of what this law looks like in the healthcare setting um, as an attending physician, as attending psychiatrist at UCI Health. And then there's going to be a panel. Um, We've invited a few other speakers from the day. Um, Dr. Joshua Grill will be moderating. Awesome. (laughs) He... He, t- he brings the ethical issues and their delicacy out like no other. I've, yes. I haven't forgotten a word he's ever told me. He's been on here on this show a couple of times. And, of course, in all these public panels he's been on. So he'll, he'll be the moderator. Yes. And pulling- this is certainly an ethical topic. So Dr. Grill will be moderating a panel of clinicians. Um, and really the aim of the panel is to promote thoughtful deliberation of, of suicide, um, the new law, and how our medical and social infrastructure of care um, can better allow those living with Alzheimer's disease to feel welcomed and valued and not burdensome and desperate. So the, that panel, along with the, the end-of-life care panel, the POST, and the Physicians Aid in Dying, I'm hoping that there will be a, a thread throughout those attention to what is the, the new Medicare billing ability for physicians to talk with patients and their loved ones about all of these choices. There, there was a, a sort of a, um, a berating of that. I'm not going to even give lip service to the term that that was used by a, a, a sort of a nothing burger conservative uh, provocateur, but I'm not going to use what she called them. But there are, in fact, opportunities for physicians to spend time, be, be able to bill for that time spent so that patients and their families understand what all of these issues pose for them to help them maintain some kind of control over what where they feel like they're at a loss for any kind of control. Yeah, and with all of the physicians on the panel, I'm sure that will be a, a topic of discussion. A big one. Well, I've got a topic. I, I think you're, you've been thinking about it, too. We all have in uh, consuming the news over the last week and a half, two weeks, is for it's a topic either for a panel or maybe there's a larger sort of theme for the the whole conference dementia in the eye of the storm managing through a disaster mm-hmm. has that been already talked about when people saw that with the power shutting out in the Hollywood Florida senior care facility and those people were SOL mhm and they still yeah. are yeah so you think that might be a we're springing a topic on you in a live radio show, but, <laughs> but do you think that that might be something? That yeah, I mean, it's an interesting metaphor, and um, it, definitely the disease can feel tumultuous for families at time. Um, it it's can a feel like storm. you're a bit in yeah, the storm it can in the feel storm. like you're a bit um, in the midst of a storm, and the hope really with a conference like this is to raise awareness, reduce stigma, and hopefully. Um, empower patients and families and healthcare providers to be able to talk about these things so that we can we can calm some of that storm and make people more comfortable and and feel like they're not alone. Well, you say that so it just rolls off your tongue, but all that is such hard work to to master all of those things. 
amidst Alzheimer's. So do you want to give us all the logistics, all the details for this Friday's sure. conference, yeah. Chelsea Cox? Um, you know, we're, we're really excited to have around 49, I think, 49 exhibitors. Um, oh, tell us a little bit about what they're going to be bringing. Yeah, so uh, we have exhibitors who will be there representing assisted living and memory cares, um, memorial services, different health plans like SCAN health plan will okay. be there, in-home support services. Uh, clinical research. We have a wealth management organization that will be there, different hospice care organizations, um, and then a plethora of support services. Not just Alzheimer's Orange County will obviously be a great one, but um, other other um, like different lots of nonprofits. That definitely de aging department of aging. I'm, I know yep. what's the um, yeah definitely OC Office on Aging. Okay. Um, lots of different governmental organizations in Orange County locally. Um, as well as even a driving center where they do driving assessments. So oh, lots wow. of good services and Is supports. that a new one, the driving It's called the one? Adaptive Driving Center. They've um, been around for a while. But this, this is new <clears throat> to this conference as yes. an exhibitor? Okay, because I, I don't Because it's remember. relevant to one of the topics. We, we try to reach out to um, have different people there who could provide services that are relevant to the topics. Well done. All right. And then otherwise, in terms of logistics, you mentioned yes. it earlier. I'll mention again. It's Please this do. Friday, September 22nd, 2017, at the Irvine Marriott Hotel. Um, and the registration and check-in starts from 7.30 to 8.30. The conference itself will begin at 8.30 a.m. and goes till 4 p.m. The address is 18,000 Von Carmen Avenue at the Irvine Marriott. And um, Claudia, as you mentioned, thank you. Space is always available for it last always minute registration. I know, I know you you sell off every uh, spot. It seems like, but there's always space, and, yeah. and so people shouldn't be deterred. Usually, we get this little interview in earlier, uh, like a couple of weeks ahead of the conference. This was just the same week, unfortunately. So anybody listening yeah. to this live and listening to the podcast, know that you can do that, and they can. You can give the number and the, the website. Yes, you can go to the shorter website, www.mind.uci.edu slash events slash conference. And that will have some more information for you. Um, or you could call if you want have questions about registration, 949-757-3721. And um, we definitely would love to have anyone who feels that this information would be valuable to them to attend the conference. Well, thank you. That's all the time we have, Chelsea. Thanks for make, taking the time on your busy run-up. Thank you so much for having week, me. Toward the, toward the conference, that was Chelsea Cox, Associate Director of Education at UCI Mind. We'll be right back after a station break with Rebecca Tuhus Dubrow, writer in residence at UCI, about her new book entitled Personal Stereo, published by Boonsberg. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Well, good to be alive. Welcome back to the show. Returning to the show is my next guest, Rebecca Tuhus Dubrow. She is writer in residence at UCI with articles galore on topics, as I've said before, they're near and dear to this popsicle stand. Jane Jacobs, Radical Vision of Humanity and Speed Kills, has technology destroyed leisure, and her writing has appeared in Slate, The Nation, The New York Times Book Review, 
the L.A. Review of Books and Descent, where she is a contributing editor. She previously contributed to the Boston Globe's Ideas section as a columnist for the urban affairs website Next City and a journalism and media fellow at UCLA Institute of the Environment and Sustainability. Her project, the point of the whole interview today, is Walkman. It's published by Bloomsbury, and it's called personal stereo. She completed her BA degree at Yale, and you may have heard Rebecca on the show late June taking up the Community Choice Energy Initiatives and local group buy of solar panels on Irvine Homes. Today, it is all about her choice, read and recent release, Personal Stereo, published by Bloomsbury. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Rebecca Tuhustubrow. Thanks, Claudia. Well, I got to tell you, it was such a delight to read, but before we go into that, I just want for you to help us understand exactly what a writer-in-residence does, what you like most about that role. Sure. Well, I, the biggest part for me is that I get to have an office on campus, <laughs> okay. so I don't have to go crazy staying alone in my house. Okay. And I get to share a hallway with some very nice people in the humanities department. Do you get to shape minds? That write, young writers' minds? Mm, well, I do teach a class at UCI, but that's separate from my writer-in-residence It role. is? Okay. Yeah. I teach a class called International Journalism. But um, I also, as part of the writer-in-residence role, I have library privileges, and including access to online resources like LexisNexis. So that was really essential, actually, to the process of writing this book. I don't think I could have written it without those resources. Okay, well, so which came first, the Walkman story in your head or the object lesson series under which this is published? The latter. The latter. They, they approached you? No, but I was having coffee with a friend in Los Angeles. Uh, his name is Evan Kindley, and he told me that he was writing a book called Questionnaire for this series. So that was the first I had heard of the series, and I immediately knew that I wanted to write something for it. And then, actually, immediately, I had the idea of the Walkman. It just popped into my head. <laughs> well, I think we're gonna—we're not gonna psychoanalyze you, but you've probably been writing that personal stereo in your head for quite a, a maybe a, up to a couple decades, hmm. don't you think? You were <laughs> that this was a this is a you, the way because you you it's a very thoughtful uh, relating to your experience of your first Walkman. I mean, mm -hmm. so it seems like you've been drafting this subconsciously over mm -hmm. the years. Maybe. Okay. Well. I, I hadn't really thought much about it, at least consciously. I hadn't thought about the Walkman in, in years, but then it just came to me. Okay. Okay. Well, so briefly then, because it's a, the, the object lessons, and I, I could run down the list of what else it's, I'll quickly say that among other items that object lessons includes uh, Cigarette lighter, drone. I don't know what dust is like. I have to check out what that that's about. Golf ball, eye chart, remote control, shipping container, and the shopping mall. I don't know. Silence is in there too. There's all kinds of interesting things. So, how much freedom did Bloomington give you to write this? Did you were, did you have your own editor, or did they have an editor that got in there first? They have editors, okay. Uh, so, I submitted a proposal and they approved it, and then I wrote a draft, a manuscript, and it's actually edited by t 
there's an editor at Bloomsbury, and it, but the series is edited by two academics, Ian Bogost and, and Christopher Schaberg. So all of them were involved in the editorial process. Okay. So let's talk about what you have covered. Yeah, well... So let's go back to 1979. Let's do that. <laughs> you can go back further. You can go post-World War II because I, I thought that I should let you give us a little idea about these the two gentlemen. But I, uh-huh. what, what we're trying to do is we don't want any spoiler alerts. The idea is to tease sales today. So we, <laughs> we want to talk around the edges so people jump in and get their own copy. Okay, I'll try. <laughs> um, so, well, Sony was founded by Akio Morita and Masaru Ibuka in post-war Japan. And they started by repairing radios, kind of trying to figure out what product they could make that would really make their name. And their first success was a tape recorder, which was the first one available in Japan in the late 40s or early 50s. And um, then fast forward a couple decades. So to speak. Yeah, so to speak. So it's hard for us to imagine now, but before 1979, it was really unheard of for people to wear headphones in public. The only people who wore headphones were people like you and, you know, radio stations. Plugged into a console. Professionals, um, you know, military pilots. There were various kinds of professionals who wore headphones. And it was possible to listen on headphones at home if you wanted to be considerate and not bother your family while you were listening to music. But that wasn't particularly widespread. And just going around in public listening to headphones just wasn't done. So even though the technology pretty much existed at the time, you know, headphones existed, tape recorders existed, it just hadn't really occurred to anybody that it would be a good idea to put them together into a miniature device that you could wear out in public. And it's hard to believe now, but but it was seen as people, nobody really thought about it. and And then when people did think of it, most people thought it was a bad idea. So people at most employees at Sony were not enthusiastic about the idea. But Akio Morita pushed this idea forward in the late 70s. And then they released it. And it was almost immediately a really big hit. And that big hit is is a central point. So that the reason it was a big hit is because there is a very sort of a psychological kind of packing, uh, impact of that de- this, of the device mm-hmm. for the first time, what it allowed people to sense. So let's have you talk about that and how people are engaging with their world or disengaging mm-hmm. with that little device strapped to the ears and portable sound only going in, not recording at all. Yeah, I think you can use it in different ways. At the time, people, well, a a lot of people said that it felt like being on drugs or being drunk. Um, I think it felt surreal because of the disconnect between sight and sound. So you were walking around on the same streets you always walked on or you were on the bus, the same mundane situation, but you had this wonderful music in your ears and you didn't have the other sounds that were associated with the sites around you. So that was, even though now we're kind of used to it, that was very surreal at the time 
a soundtrack. You're you're in yes. it, and I I was thinking of it's not just personal stereo; it's personal rock arena. You know, you're the yeah. you're the rock and roll star, <laughs> and you are like surrounded with this whole impactful kind of music rolling on. Whether it's it's rock and roll, it's classical music. I mean, all any kind or jazz. It's mm-hmm. all it personal rock arena. What mm-hmm. do you think? Yeah, and people often compared it to cinema. So they felt like they were the star of their own movie or, or like they were what like personal a, cinema. Yeah. Or, or that the scene around them was a movie that they were watching. That was another analogy that came up a lot. So so you could just kind of zone out and forget where you were. Uh, that was one possibility. Or some people I came across talked about how they didn't feel disengaged from the world exactly, but they engaged in a different way and it almost it made everything around them more vivid because they were kind of seeing it uh, fresh. So for those of you who joined us, my guest for this portion of the hour is Rebecca Tuhus Dubrow. She's a writer in residence at UCI and contributing editor at Descent with her new book that we're talking about today's Personal Stereo, published by Bloomsbury here on Ask a Leader, KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming on the web around the world on KUCI.org. So if you could elaborate when the, the there was a there's a little sort of a patent war. We're not going to say anything more about that. It's mm-hmm. an interesting, it, it's a technological sort of psychological uh, aspect there. But with part of that patent plot in your book, that the other innovator or, or alleged innovator thought of the, the sort of addictive quality and wanted to to bring that in, but that as you said that his attorney said, well, let's, let's take that part out. But but there is a, there is a psychosocial impact of addictive way, and we can see it because ev- there, there's been no looking back. It's only been the Walkman's only been replaced by a more addictive mm-hmm. audio tool. Yeah, we've only we in a way the Walkman or the the fundamental innovation of the Walkman it never went away. It's still with us. We've just added on to it. So today we have the immediate successor to the Walkman was well, I suppose the Discman. But then the real next innovation came with the iPod, and which that, was slim, slimmer. Yeah, the disc was a bit. Yeah, nobody clunky. really likes the Discman. <laughs> I never had a Discman, but um, but now we have smartphones, and that's how most people listen to portable music. But there are countless other options as well. So yeah, it's that much more addictive. That was the narcotic uh, aspect we're talking about. So. What I'd like for us to think about, maybe it's we're not qualified to talk about, but it's it's whether this has some impact on stifling deeper thinking. I just want for listeners to consider that. I think when we're busy being a sort of insulated rock star or movie set, you know, principal, we're maybe gliding on a plane that's not so so deep and so self-realized. And I mean, deep. And so I, I there is a there's a consequence. I think we've we've made a Faustian bargain with our feelings so damn good. Well, I would amend that a bit. I, I yes. think for me, the Walkman, if anything, I think facilitated thinking. It facilitated reflection, r- reminiscing, daydreaming, whatever I was in the mood for. And you could tune out your surroundings and focus on your own mind. But certainly, I think the smartphone has the effects that you're talking about because it's not just daydreaming. It's and focusing on your own thoughts. It's, you know, checking Facebook, getting a new text. It's it's just, it's a very different mental experience than the one provided by the Walkman. 
Well, I'd like for you, I hope that, I don't know if you have a, a prepared section that you'd like to read or if uh, you would like to head over to page 102 sure. and you could read from that. I thought uh, because that this whole digital domain in which we've all come to to stay for good we're not nobody's leaving it but but you're reflective of what is perhaps not quite sufficient what's the last you could start with the, the I would add a final virtue of analog devices I think that's it's a remarkable one if you would read that for us Rebecca sure. should I give a little background absolutely okay. so in this section I'm reviewing the various virtues of analog devices and I refer to a recent book called The Revenge of Analog by David Sachs. So I'm kind of drawing on his book to note a few of, of the advantages like scarcity. Now analog devices are scarce because we, we rely so heavily on They're digital. getting timed out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and limits are another virtue of analog devices that may seem counterintuitive, but, um, but limits actually have a lot of value. And then, so this is where the, the passage starts. I would add a final virtue of analog devices, specialization. Not long ago, I bought an alarm clock. It's made of silver metal about five inches in diameter with a white face, black numbers and hands, and a clapper that vibrates between two bells. It has little feet of the kind I associate primarily with bathtubs. <laughs> it's nothing fancy. I got it for 15 bucks. The impetus was that when I used my phone as an alarm, I kept getting awakened too early by spam calls. To avoid this, I'd have to turn on airplane mode after hunting for the clock app, then choosing the alarm function and selecting the time. To set the alarm on the clock, I simply turn a knob on the back and switch the on button. The benefits of the smartphone's omnifunctionality are obvious, namely extreme convenience. But precisely because it is all-purpose, it isn't as good as each, at each individual job. There's something beautiful about the simplicity of the clock, the way its design fulfills its function, and the way you can see exactly how it does so. Watch the hands moving, watch, hear, and even feel the bell ringing. I'm reminded of how the Walkman was unusual in subtracting a function from the tape recorder's capabilities so that it could do only one thing. A clock or a record player or a Walkman is like a charming pastry shop or produce stand, a clothing boutique or a Parisian boulangerie. A smartphone is like Walmart. Oh, I, I just, and everybody got a little taste of your writing <laughs> and your sensibilities. And I, I thought that was really a, a, a lovely capturing of where that, that's why in introducing the show, I was talking about to, from analog to digital and maybe back. And, and that's sort of, you do give us a little back to the future reference there. So I've got to ask, of course, where is your personal stereo right now? <laughs> I know you have one still. You have to. Well, I, I, didn't I lost mine somewhere along the oh. way sadly but I do have one now that a friend gave me when he knew that I was working on this project and he he found one and he sent it to me and I actually listened to it I often listen to it now when I go for walks at that night. time you put the batteries in yes <laughs> it came. don't give it away no 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 no, no nothing we're not gonna do that though well I'd like to know if Bloomsbury mm -hmm offered you another object lesson contract. Do you know what kind of object you take up next? Or or one or more? Well, to be honest, yes. I think, although I, I loved writing this book and it was a great 
first book. This is my first book. Oh, really? Yeah. All the others were all articles. Yeah. Okay. So I saw this as a great opportunity to kind of figure out how to write a book, but I would love to write a longer book next time and probably one that was a little more expansive. So I, yeah. And, and whereas, as I said before, last time Walkman just came to me immediately as something I would love to write about. There's no other object that I, I have the same feeling about. So I'm not sure that, that I would want to write another one, although I loved writing this one. Okay. Well, the crafting in the book, it's, it's obvious that you love the Walkman and what it does, what it did, and that a certain kind of a, a standard for a quality of living, you know. And so I find that when I'm out and about, I, I ride my bike a lot, and I always wear a helmet, but I notice that it seems to be the costume. Somebody with earbuds is also somebody without a helmet. And so mm. there's the safety aspect that I think it, it galls me. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, like you mentioned in there about somebody saying they plugged into their Walkman when they wanted to block out the beach sounds. And they're, they're talking about the crass beach users, but, I mean, they block out the sound of the ocean, too. So there, right. there are many many shortcomings that we mm-hmm. I think we ought to be a little more mm-hmm. self-aware mm, definitely so one of the most interesting parts of writing this book for me was that to me the Walkman was just this very benign and beloved um, object and when I started researching it I realized that there had been um, the reception at the time had been a lot of concern and alarm o- about the way the Walkman was affecting public space and safety, what, the things you just mentioned. Yes, exactly. So that, that was interesting to me because it, it just made me see it in a new light. And, and there, there, are, there certainly are shortcomings even to the Walkman itself. Um, it's, it's double-edged. I think any technology is double-edged, has advantages and disadvantages. But it, it's a part of almost the anatomy at this point, that the, this whole this digital device with the headgear on, all that. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know. Is there going to be a chance for people to meet you and have them sign their personal copies of personal stereo? Yes. Coming up? Actually, I'm going to be doing an event on campus. I think it's November 6th. November 6th, more or less. Yes. It's going to be with uh, another author, a Stanford professor who has written a book about the Chinese typewriter. So another analog object. Oh, cool. Oh, very good. All right. Well, Rebecca Tuhustuau, it's really been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you for presenting this lovely book for us to read and for us to be able to talk about today. It's been a pleasure for me. Thanks, Claudia. Okay. Thank you so much. Well, that was Rebecca Tuhustuau, writer in residence at UCI and contributing editor at Descent, talking about her personal stereo published by Boomsbaron. We're announcements. I've got a few, so stick it out with me, everybody. Assembly Bill 249, the California Disclose Act, passed in the Assembly in a bipartisan vote, 59 to 15, after a respectable seven-year grassroots campaign, I got to say. So um, if you want to uh, weigh in with the governor whose signature is pending, then you know how to reach the governor easily enough. He's not that hard to reach. Uh, That's the Californians, Assembly Bill 249, tons of bills that he has to sign or veto by October 15th. 
for your information, because it's hard to track this stuff down, I found, I got some help. Assemblyman Matthew Harper and Stephen Choi, who represent different parts of Irvine, both voted no. Senator Morlock's office did not get back to me about his position on this legislation. He did pass on the vote, though, neither voting yay or nay. Now, new on the policy market is called Zinke Wrap. Secretary of Interior Ryan Zinke proposes not only shrinking the boundaries of Bears Ears, which we've covered on this show about a month and a half ago, but he's requesting that Congress make less restrictive designations within it, such as national recreation areas or national conservation areas. The monument, which contains tens of thousands of culture artifacts, has become the most prominent symbol of the issues surrounding the Antiquities Act. Coverage must be nuanced. NPR is not getting this right, I have to say. So I'm going to keep holding them to that standard there. So then enabling silencers in, on firearms is embedded in pending gun legislation in Congress. Now, if you remember when the congressional members were shot at, if it weren't for the noise going off with that gun, there would have been a lot more people killed. So the, stay tuned with information about this legislation on uh, enabling gun silencers. Well, that's my wrap next week. I'm going to have on Shahir Masri. He's a UCI environmental science researcher, and uh, he was going to come return to the show to cover the latest in connecting the dots since those storms and fires were pretty monumental. More are on their way. Watch the next. We've got another storm here. Maria, or I can't, I'm losing track. Maria, I think it is. Then my second guest is LA Times business columnist Michael Hiltzik. He will assess Irvine's disposition as Amazon's second campus. We're going we're to look under the hood and see if leadership's up to negotiating that possibility. And I'd like to close still to the Earth is Flat crowd. Diversity is not a checklist. It's an enrichment plan. Thank you. Talk with you next week. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.